Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to read from the first verse. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. What we've been seeing so far is that uh, the, what Paul is saying here is that because we've been justified through faith, we believe Jesus died in our place, we believe he took our sin, we believe he has given to us his perfect righteousness. Before God, we are justified simply through faith. And that has brought us into a place of grace, and we were seeing last week that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, death is no longer the end of the road for us. Jesus, by his resurrection, has punched a hole through death, and it's like the light of the future now shines on us, and we boast, we exalt, we glory, we rejoice in this hope that we've got, a hope that goes through death into the future to be with the Lord forever. And then Paul says, not only that, we don't only boast and glory and rejoice in our hope, we also rejoice in our sufferings. Uh, and then he says, why? What he's saying here is that adverse circumstances don't change that rejoicing. Adverse circumstances don't change that delight, that boasting in what is ahead. But before we, we're going to look at uh, verse 3 to this morning about rejoicing in our sufferings, uh, but before we get into that, I just want to say there's only one kind of Christianity. I say that because as we look at this verse this morning, it's possible that many of us perhaps will think, well, that's all right for some, but I can't see myself being quite like that. Now, there's only one kind of Christianity. It's not like when we become a Christian, we're offered the kind of sales brochure with all the different levels, all the different specifications we can opt for. If you wanted to buy a car, let's suppose you wanted to buy a Ford Focus. Did you know, and those who are taking notes can make a note of this, did you know there are 66 different models of Ford Focus? Make a note. You can discuss that in your core groups this week. I counted them. There are 66. That's not taking account of different colors. So each of those 66 different models then comes in a whole range of colors. You can opt for whatever. You can opt for the entry level one or the top of the range. And some people, I think, come to Christianity like that and say, I'll go for the entry level. Bit underpowered, bit basic, but it'll get me there. And the top of the range, well, a church leader, they've got to be top of the range. They're, they're going to be really committed, presumably praying all the time. If you phone them, you're likely to interrupt them praying because that's what they do all day. You might think, what do they do all day? But anyway, that's another issue. 
top of the range for a church leader, but then there's the entry level, ordinary Christians. Uh, yeah, they're, they're there most Sundays, unless it's the World Cup or family visiting or whatever. But, you know, normally around, unless they don't feel like it, a bit under weather, I've got vertigo or whatever. You know, normally they are there, but entry level, top of the range. Actually, the top of the range, of course, isn't the church leader. The top of the range is Jesus Christ. He's the top of the range. In very nature, God became one of us, a servant, giving his life up, crucified for us, his meat and drink to do the will of his Father. That's the top of the range. But you know, when Paul says about Jesus being in very nature God, taking the form of a servant, he prefaces it by saying, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. There's only actually one kind of Christianity, Jesus Christ. And we're in him, and his Holy Spirit is in us. Let this mind be in you that's also in Christ. There's actually only, there's not an entry level and the top of the range, there's one. So if you've been kind of given the sales brochure, you can opt for whichever kind of Christianity you want. You've been seriously misled. There's only one gospel because there's only one Savior. And if we're in him, his spirit is in us, then we're going to be like him. So as we look at this verse, don't kind of think, well, I couldn't be like that. No, this, this is the gospel. This is what it means to be in Christ. This is what he is like. We're in him, his spirit is in us. So, let's get into it. It says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but not only so, we also rejoice in our sufferings. When it speaks of sufferings there, it's speaking about the troubles that come, the trials that come. It's a word that elsewhere means tribulation, the, thing, the things that particularly attack us because we're Christians. Jesus said in John chapter 16, it's recorded, John 16 verse 33, he said, in this world you will have trouble. So there's a promise. <laughs> Hold on to the promises of God. Here's a promise. In this world you will have trouble. And it's the same word that is translated sufferings here in Romans chapter 5. Jesus knew what it was to have trouble. He knew what it was to be misunderstood, to be misrepresented, to be ultimately attacked and killed. He knew about trouble. And he says, if you're following me, it's going to be like that for you. In the world, you will have trouble. And Paul says here, we rejoice in our sufferings. The world is opposed to us. The world is heading in a different direction from us. We're going to have trouble. You know how it is if you are in a hurry and most people are going the other way. You battle through. And that's what it's like as a Christian. We're battling through. We're going to have trouble. There's another amazing statement about that. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul, again, no stranger to troubles personally. And he says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29, it has been granted to you. And that word translated granted means a gracious gift. It's been graciously given to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. 
That's a gracious gift that God has given to us, for which we say thank you. The gift that enables us to believe in him, and also this wonderful gift of suffering for him. The two go together. If we believe in him, then we are going against the world. The world is against us. We will suffer. And we rejoice in that because it demonstrates we are in Christ. We are the real item. We are really in him. These things will happen. Peter says much the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 15 He says, uh, sorry, not not verse 12. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The same ideas where in Christ we will suffer and we rejoice in that because it demonstrates we're in Christ and it demonstrates the glorious future that is ahead for us. Now it says, it goes on to say in verse 15, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. There can be some suffering that is the result of our sin. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the suffering that is simply ours because we're in Christ. Troubles will come. In this world, you will have trouble. The trouble that we get from the world... But also, we suffer with the world. We're in a world of pain. And we're not immune from that. The whole creation, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, is groaning. And then he says, and we also groan. Because we're not immune to the sufferings that come on us just because we're in a fallen world. So we will suffer. And Paul says here, We rejoice in our sufferings. The great John Stott has said, suffering is the one and only path to glory. If we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, if that's where we're heading, the route there is via suffering. Again, in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, it says there, If we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So suffering is inevitable, it will come, but it doesn't take away our rejoicing, it doesn't take away our boasting in this hope of the glory of God. It doesn't diminish our hope. And Paul says, Why it doesn't? He gives us two reasons. Because of what we know in verse 3, and also, verse 5, what we experience. There are two reasons why when the world throws its worst at us, it doesn't take our hope away. Because of what we know, and because of what we experience. So he says, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance Perseverance, character, and character, hope. It doesn't cause us to stop rejoicing because of what we know. And we need to ask ourselves, well then, do we know this? And how do we know it? Well, it's, it's the knowledge that comes from what we believe. We believe in God. 
We believe in his total sovereignty over everything, which means over every detail of our lives. We believe in his covenant love that he is committed to loving us. We believe that. We know that we're in his hands. We know his power over everything, that nothing happens to us outside of his will. We know that. And because of what we know, we press through. And we don't find that our hope or our joy is taken away. Now, Paul says, we know that suffering produces perseverance. Suffering is productive. It's not just one of these things that happens. It is productive. God is at work in us when we're suffering. God is doing something. It's like the master craftsman has, is giving us particular attention. When we're going through suffering, we perhaps might wish that he wasn't giving us that attention. But actually, that's what's happening. The master craftsman has is, is, is picked us up and is saying, right, I'm going to do some work on you now. Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 2, when he's speaking about our salvation, that's all grace through faith. He says it's all God's work. And he puts it in this way in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. He says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We're God's workmanship. He's the workman and he's working on us. When we suffer, the master craftsman is at work. Anne referred to uh, something that, uh, a prophecy that came on Friday evening in the prayer time. And uh, there was this word about God putting his finger on things. That God's glory, God's holiness and God's glory are wrapped up together and and if we want to see his glory, there's holiness there, and God puts his finger on things. And we were just receiving that on Friday evening and praying into that. Yes, a holy God is the workman, the master craftsman at work in our lives, and he deals with things. One of the ways that he deals with things is actually through pain, through suffering. He's rubbing off some edges. He's dealing with some things in our lives. The master craftsman is at work, but also our Father, our loving Heavenly Father is at work. Our loving Heavenly Father is training us. Do you remember what the writer to the Hebrews says? In Hebrews chapter 12, you can read about it, Hebrews 12 and verse 10. He says, Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness. It's productive. It produces something. It is unpleasant. Now, obviously, political correctness can affect how we look at this, but back in the good old days... When parents disciplined their children, it was painful. It wasn't just standing in the corner or whatever. No, it's bend over. And do you know, years ago, in the early days of Bible weeks, in the bookshop, I remember this well, you could get by in the bookshop a little implement with which to smack your child's bottom. They actually sold. I think it had a Bible verse on it. 
And at the specified time, you would reach for it and say, bend over. And it was, uh, well, you get locked up for it now. But once upon a time, discipline was painful. And that's what it's talking about here. This is how God does it. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But it's productive. And it means your heavenly Father loves you. And it means he is dealing with some issues that are only going to be dealt with like that. And incidentally, when I say we're not allowed to do it now, but once upon a time in the good old days, yes, the good old days, because that is God's way to deal with things. Smacking is actually good for children. That's on the internet. I'll get locked up. But there you go. It is. The Bible says it. And that's how God deals with us. So suffering, the master craftsman at work, a loving heavenly father at work, loving heavenly father saying, bend over. Because <laughs> we need to learn. We need to learn. Sin leads to punishment. I'm not going to go that way anymore. I want to live for God. God disciplines us. So suffering, we know that suffering produces so there's some things we know. We know because we read our Bible. We see it there. Suffering is not just random. It's not just something that's come right out of the blue. No, it's our God, our sovereign God who's, who loves us. We're in his hands. He's the master craftsman dealing with us. And he's our loving heavenly father disciplining, disciplining us. We know that. Now, what does it produce? Well, it produces, Paul says, first of all, perseverance. Perseverance means endurance. Suffering, of course, can produce other things. Suffering can produce self-pity, anger. People who suffer a little bit say, I got really angry with God. Oh, you need to suffer a bit more to learn some different things. You don't get angry with God. He loves you. He's good. And he's good all the time. Suffering can produce other things. It can can produce bitterness. It can produce just falling away altogether. God doesn't love me. Yes, he does. That's why you're going through it. But we can think, no, no, he doesn't love me. It can lead to depression. It can lead to all, all sorts of things. But if we know, if we know our Bible, if we know what the Bible says, then suffering produces some good things. It produces perseverance, endurance. It's kind of the image that comes to mind, because it's an image that is used again and again in the New Testament, it's the endurance of the long-distance runner. Think how many references there are in the New Testament to running the race, running and not giving up. Do you remember what Paul says when he's writing to his friends in Corinth? They knew about it. They had the, the, the games there in Corinth and they knew about athletics and so on. They would see these things in the arena in, in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24. He says, don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Well, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that won't last, a laurel wreath. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Running means running through the pain barrier. 
Now, you might not believe this, but once upon a time, I used to go out running quite often of an evening. I remember um, when I was a student in London, I used to go out for a run. And I used to run around the outer circle, around the outside of Regent's Park. One of the difficulties with that was it is a circle, so you never felt you were getting anywhere. You know, normally you sort of go around a corner, and, but just when it's a big circle, you just keep running. And you think, you, unless you run at night so it's dark, you maybe can't see the landmarks, you don't know how far you've gone, you, 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 your heart starts wanting to pop out of your mouth and all of the, your lungs are bursting, and you just keep going until finally, running around the outer circle, you ended up where you started. But just, you keep going, and that's the idea. You keep going. It produces perseverance. You don't stop. And what builds that into us? Well, you've got to get through the pain barrier. It's getting through the pain barrier that brings that. And this is what Paul is speaking about, suffering, pressing through. We don't stop. It produces perseverance. God is at work in us to do that. He wants people who will stay the course, people who won't give up at the first sign of trouble. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews, again, has the, the same idea, doesn't he? When talking about running in Hebrews chapter 12, that same chapter that speaks about God's discipline. He says, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles, and let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Yeah, there's so many things that get in the way. God wants us to press through. Suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance is also productive. It produces character. Character means passing the test, being proven. This provenness that means there's quality here. I started off by saying how many different models of a Ford Focus there are. Well, just to come back to the image of a car, when a new model is going to come out before it's released, they, they do a lot of testing. There's a test track in the, the Midlands. It's got all sorts of different road surfaces, and they'll pound a vehicle around there just to see, is, is this going to last? So maybe send it up to the Arctic Circle. They'll go uh, to other places just testing, testing, testing until finally it's released because we've seen recently uh, with that trouble, I won't mention names, but a, a particular make of car that had uh, massive recalls all over the world because it wouldn't stop. <laughs> uh, and it's a disaster. You know, things have to be tested. They've got to be proven. And God wants Christians to be tested, to come through to maturity, to have character. Character is so important, this provenness. In, in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, Peter says uh, about troubles that come, he says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, might be proved genuine. So that your faith might be proved 
genuine. How can your faith be proved genuine unless it's tested? Unless things happen that you just can't understand. Why did that happen? But I'm going to believe God. One of the greatest examples of suffering in the, in the Bible, obviously the greatest example of suffering is what Jesus went through. But in the Old Testament, there's the story of Job, a man who suffered. Incredible what that guy goes through. And then he's got all his well-meaning friends bombarding him with irrelevant truth. And what does he do? Does he give up? No, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. His faith sees him through, and it's productive. Comes through to a better place than he ever had been. But God wants to prove us. Character is such a vital quality. And character comes from pain that has been endured. You can't fast track someone to maturity. Yeah, we have our training schemes and that's good. But you can't fast track someone to maturity. Maturity comes from coping with the setbacks. Maturity comes from pressing through the opposition. Maturity comes from coping with the suffering. And all of that is productive. God is building strength. So tragic, particularly in these present times, because there's such an emphasis on mission, which is good. An emphasis on church planting. Excellent, we want to reach the nation. But you see, young people say, I want to be a church planter. They go off full of zeal. Problems come. Now, you know, the news is always of the, the new church plant. We tend not to hear of those that have failed. And character sometimes just isn't there. Fast-tracking into leadership. Fast-tracking into mission. Fast-tracking into adventure. But where's the character? Character comes through going through these things. God wants people who are marathon runners, long-distance runners. They press through, through the pain barrier, but they're going to keep going because there's a goal. There's a hope of glory. There's a prize to be won. doesn't come easily. doesn't come to everyone. are going to press through and win. And there's only one kind of Christianity. It's not the entry level and then the top of the range. This is the gospel. Jesus spoke to all those would-be disciples who came to him, and he could see they're full of zeal, but they didn't understand what it was going to cost. And he tells them, this is going to cost you everything. Everything. There isn't just an entry level. No, it's all top of the range. He said, you've got to hate your life if you're going to follow me. You've got to turn away from family commitments that will clutch at you. There's a story in Greek mythology. I can't now remember the names of the characters. Maybe if you've read any of this stuff, you'll know. But about a race. And running this race. And there's someone who is determined to win. And the way they intend to win was to distract the person who could beat them. And what they did was as they're running along, they just dropped out golden apples. And so... There's this rival runner coming alongside him. Wow, this golden apple. Oh, I must have that. And the other guy presses through. And the devil will see to it. But as we're running, oh, these distractions come. Well, that's attractive. I'd like to go that way. And we're off course. Paul says to the Galatians, you were running well. What cut in? What got in the way? 
And those things can be good. A golden apple, wow, I'd like that. Valuable. Family commitments, other things, just go after them. Jesus said, no, got to take up your cross and follow me. Character, perseverance, character. We know that suffering produces this. Don't learn it out of a book. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Far from suffering weakening our hope, it actually strengthens it. It's like our home, our hope shines more brightly the more it gets polished up, the more it gets rubbed the more that things come against us, our hope shines more brightly. The more we have to exercise our faith, the stronger it is. The more our hope comes against resistance, the stronger it gets. And so, suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Just uh, this week, been uh, in Philippians chapter 1, just reading through it, working through it. And you see there, Paul in prison, in Rome, he doesn't know if the way out of prison is to execution. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And he just says, for me to live is Christ. He's just got one goal. At the end of his letter to the Philippians, he says, everyone's seeking their own interests. Yeah, that's sad. But he's got one goal. And the thing about his letters to the Philippians is it's all about joy. This guy doesn't know what's going to happen to his life, but he's, he rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice, he says. It's the hope of the glory of God. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Single-minded. How's that been produced in him? Well, through what he suffered. And through suffering, his hope burns more brightly. He knows where he's going. And it's just strength to him. So Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, First of all, because of what we know. What we know. We know it produces perseverance, character, and hope. But there's also what we experience. Verse 5, hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. How do we know that our hope won't be disappointed at the end? How do we know that our hope is genuine, that our hopes are not going to be dashed? Well, Paul says, hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because of what God is doing now. And what God is doing now is giving us down payments on what He's going to do then. There's the hope of the glory of God future, but the Holy Spirit brings the future into our now, and the Holy Spirit pours out our Father's love into our hearts. Now, all the way through this chapter so far, Paul has been dealing with almost a kind of logic. The first word in the chapter, therefore. As far as I can recall, we spent a whole week looking at that word. Incidentally, I've got friends here from Woking who are telling me 
that they started into Romans at the start of this year, and they're in chapter 8 already, I tell you. The superficiality that they... (laughs) We looked at this word, therefore, and we saw it so important that we see truth has a so what. Truth has got implications. And as we get hold of the truth, we then need to say, well, so what? What does this lead to? What, what is that? What are the implications of that? And so Paul is spelling out the implications. We've been justified through faith. Well, so what? That means I've got peace with God. That means I'm standing in grace. All of these things are implications. You just work it out. And here he's saying we rejoice in our sufferings because of what we know. It's all what we've got in our minds. It's the truth that we've got hold of. But that changes at verse 5. And at verse 5, he's not talking about some logical deduction. He's now talking about something that we experience. Hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This is not a logical deduction now. This is something that God does in our experience. There are facts that we know. But there are also things that we feel. There are things that we experience. And God has poured out his love. In all that we face, all the opposition of a world that doesn't understand us and really wants, if if it can, the world wants to turn us around so we become just like everyone else. That's really what the opposition is, to turn us around so we become like everyone else. But in all of that, we don't face it on our own. We know God's love for us. Not now as a fact in our brain, although, yes, we know it from the Scripture, but it's poured out into our heart. This is experience. And that expression, poured out, means exactly that. It means something lavish. It means something extravagant. When you pour something out, it means there's a lot of it. Something is gushing out. Something is spilling out. And God's love is not just told to us. It's not that we're just told about God's love. We are given God's love. Hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love, where? Into our hearts. We know about it, yeah, but it's in our hearts. How do we cope with suffering? Well, Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said, speaking about all the sufferings that are going to come and so on, he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. And he was talking about the Holy Spirit. We're not on our own in this. It's not Jesus has gone back to heaven and left us to get on with it. No, he has come to us. And he pours out his love into our hearts. How did the Apostle Paul cope with being in that cell in Rome, not knowing if he's going to be executed, not knowing what the outcome was? How could he say, I know in whatever circumstance I am to be content or to be self-contained? How could he say that? Because the love of God is there gushing into his heart. He's got his own resources. God is with him. 
And there's only one kind of Christianity. There's not the entry level and then the top of the range. Entry level, pretty basic. No, you don't know any of this stuff. You just go to church. No, there's only one gospel. There's only one Savior. There's only one Jesus. And we're in Him. And we're in the Father's love. There is only one Father. And He loves to do this. He gives His Spirit. He doesn't just test us. He loves us. The love that there is between the Father and the Son and the Spirit in heaven, the God, Godhead three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, the love that there is between them is brought to us by God the Holy Spirit, including us into this wonderful love of God. And not just as a fact to know, verses to memorize, but poured out into our heart. We are in that. He doesn't just test us. He doesn't just put us through the trial. He doesn't just put us through suffering. He pours out his love into our heart. And he tests us because he wants us to know his love. And because he loves us, he will test us. The two, they go together. It's who the Lord loves that he disciplines. And when we go through discipline, we know his love in our hearts. It they go together. More testing, more relationship with God. Only one kind of Christianity, and that's Jesus. Jesus. And if we know him, there's the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That's who he is. It's the Savior who triumphed, the Savior who suffered, and the Savior who gives us his spirit. Only one kind of Christianity, and that's what we're in. And whatever we face, whatever we go through, and there can be slight problems or major problems, whatever we go through, there are incredibly bright prospects ahead. We rejoice, we bounce up and down in the hope of the glory of God. Jesus has died, risen again, gone through death, that's where we're heading. All our perspective changes because the focal point has changed. It's now heaven, not death. Everything changes because of that. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. And we, we see this is a gracious gift of God. God has graciously given this to us. Why? Because he's working for our good. Suffering is so productive. Without it, we would never grow up. And God brings these things so that we learn about endurance and provenness, so that our hope is brighter. And in it all, wow, God's overwhelming, lavish resources poured out on us. So what are you going through at the moment? Or more to the point, how are you going through it? sort of just stoically putting up with it, the typical British response, mustn't grumble. I say, no, I'm rejoicing in this. How can I rejoice in this? Well, because God's Holy Spirit is filling me. Oh, but you might say, I'm just an entry-level Christian. No, there's no such thing. This is for all whom the Lord our God shall call, that we should be filled with the Spirit, and in particular, that that causes us to know 
my heavenly father really loves me. You sure of that? Well, your, your mind can tell you that because you read the scripture and your mind should be telling you that. But God wants your heart to know it as well. And he wants your heart to know it this morning. He wants right now that you should know the Father's love poured out. Not just a little bit, oh, a little glimpse of it, but poured out. Do you believe that? That's what it says. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray.